It is Friday the 29th of March 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin and welcome to episode 33 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice and if you're looking for financial advice I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. I'd like to quickly talk about one thing before I get into the episode. In the last year I've set up an investment management company I've registered with the FMA and can provide a managed account type of service to wholesale and eligible investors. How it works is you fund your account with the broker and when I make an investment it replicates on your account. If you want to find out more information you can go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz and click on invest at the top of the page. That's www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz and click on invest. Each quarter I send out a letter to investors outlining what we're investing in and giving an update on performance. I'm about to send one out for the first quarter of 2019, so if you'd like to receive this letter, then please email me at jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. There's a lot to talk about this week. In this episode, I'm going to have a stock in focus, and that's Katmandu, who reported the results during the week. Then I'm going to do some quick-fire updates on Wellington Drive Technologies, Sky TV, Air New Zealand, Methfin, and restaurant brands. Finally, I'll answer some listener questions around ethical investing and annual reports. Let's get straight into it. Katmandu was down 3% on Tuesday after the company reported its half-year results for 2019. For those that do not know, Kathmandu is one of New Zealand's largest retailers with stores also in Australia. I think their Australian business is actually bigger than the New Zealand business. So they trade on the NZX and the ASX under the ticker code KMD. They primarily focus on branded outdoor-related equipment and apparel. As a stock, they have a pretty storied history, once having operations as far afield as the United Kingdom and another time fending off an opportunistic opportunistic takeover offer from Briscoe's. There seem to be some good metrics here with sales increasing 13.2% to $232 million. Gross profit increased 9.4% to $141 million. Gross margins is always a key indicator in retail and is something that I pay attention to. So it's interesting to note that GP has increased at a slower rate than revenue growth. And normalised net profit after tax increased 7.3% to $13.2 million. All of these numbers are in New Zealand dollars, by the way. So the CEO, Xavier Simonet, I'm not sure if I've said that properly, commented, Kathmandu is on a journey of transformation. We, While we are focused on driving growth for our core Kathmandu business in Australia and New Zealand, we are also step-by-step diversifying our channels, brands, and markets, particularly through Obos, which has delivered strong growth. Following strong strong same-store sales growth at the start of our financial year, Kathmandu experienced softer trading conditions in Australia and New Zealand over the Christmas and Boxing Day period. Despite sales being below expectation, it was pleasing to see an improvement in retail gross margin. So... That first paragraph there is quite interesting. I think it, it's implying that Kathmandu, primarily being a retailer now, is looking to step up their activity in the brand space. And I think I've said before that the having brands can be a good way of defending against online retailers such as Amazon because you get to control the distribution a lot better and it gives you a bit of a competitive advantage over other products so say for example you're selling blue jeans if you're selling unbranded blue jeans then you are literally competing on price with amazon if you're selling branded jeans that people appear to buy for its brand 
then you do have a bit more strength there. Anyway, not that Kathmandu sounds sells blue jeans. So as as I've said in the past, same store sales number numbers are always a key num- key metric in retail. And there's been some strong same store sale growth in Australia with one point two percent. Um so it's always good to see positive same store sale numbers in retail and total sales grew in Australia by two point seven percent. Things have been a bit tougher in New Zealand with same store sales decreasing two point two percent. So the Kathmandu group, that is excluding the Oboes acquisition, which I'll talk about more, was flat overall on a same-store sale basis, with total sales increasing by 1.3%. So that suggests to me that they have opened some stores as well. Gross margin for the Kathmandu brand increased by 0.8% to 64.2%, which is it's pretty good to see. It's, as, as I mentioned before, it's an, as important metric as any in, in re, for any business, but especially in retail. They said that this is due to less promotional discounting leading to higher than average selling prices so promotional discounting is is something that has got the company in a bit of trouble in the past but and it, it sort of the success of it was almost led to an over reliance on discounting and then what you found as consumers that consumers weren't buying at Kathmandu at other stage at other times unless there was a promotional discount on. Anyway, so Oboe's footwear acquisition was the bright light for the company. I think I've said in the I said earlier in the episode that I and I might have said in the past as well, but if not, I'm saying it again now that I, I quite like this acquisition for the company. As I said, one way to combat online retailing is to have your own brands and this is essentially what they're doing. And once you own a brand and you have a store network, then you then you can easily pump it through that network. And I, I get the impression from the report that that they're st- still working the the brand into the business. So there's always some time to to it takes to sort of mesh everything together. But it's nice to see pro forma growth of thirty eight point six percent anyway. So moving through the report, there was a big jump in inventory, increased from 111 million at the end of July 2018 to 130 million as at 31st of January 2019, and that's an even bigger jump from 84 million as of January 2018. So it might not necessarily raise a red flag, but it does raise an eyebrow for me at least, and inventory is always something to watch for a retailer. It can sometimes be an indication that they a company might have a bunch of product on their books that they cannot sell, and then they have to reduce the discounting or write-offs or whatever it might be. And I didn't hear any earnings call from the company. I'm not actually sure if they did one, but if you've listened to one, let me know. But at least in the printed materials associated with the report, there was not much discussion about the inventory increase, which is, is pretty disappointing because it was meaningful. And I would have liked to have seen a, a, a bit more context there. All they said was the Kathmandu inventory balance, and I'm quoting from the report, includes $6 million to support Kathmandu International and early deliveries of core styles for autumn and winter. Clearance stock is currently in line with last year. So the company blamed the, the jump in inventory as the reason for the company reporting negative cash flows. This obviously makes sense, but it would have been nice for a bit more context here. And as and another reason for this is you move down the, the, the cash flow statement, it, it pretty much forced the company to take on more debt. So there are some question marks here. They're essentially 
growing their inventories for some reason, and it'd be it'd be nice to know more. Um, moving on, the company declared a four cent per share dividend, which was flat year on year, so no change there compared to last year. In terms of outlook, the CEO did not really provide any tangible numbers, which is actually fine for me. But he actually spoke about the transformation of the Kathmandu from a retailer to a brand-led global business. Multi-channel was one of the words used to describe the approach. Omnichannel is one I didn't see, but it's been used in the past by other companies. It suggests to me that they'll continue to focus on developing brands and maybe make some acquisitions in the space in the future. Um, just before I stop talking about Kathmandu, if you're in Auckland on the 10th of April, the CEO is going to be doing a presentation for the Shareholders Association. If you turn up, you'll get to watch me ask a question about the inventory, expan inventory expansion. So the evening starts at 7.30pm, I believe. And for People that haven't been before, it is only a five dollar door charge to, and you get tea, coffee, and cookies, which is quite cool. And I'd highly recommend coming along. But I'll talk about this again in the next episode closer to the event. Right. Well, with Kathmandu sort of being the feature stop for the podcast for the week, I'm quickly going to run through some updates from some other companies that reported on the NZX during this week or had meaningful updates. So the first one is Wellington Drive Technologies (WDT) is the sticker is a sticker is actually the ticker code on the nzx i discussed them the other week in the small caps episode so they had revenue they, they reported revenue for the financial year ended 2018 of 58.7 million that is strong growth on 2017 that it was on, on 43 million so over 30 percent growth there which is quite strong so the net the net loss for the year also decreased quite significantly from over two million to just under four hundred thousand, so some good progress there for Wellington Drive Technologies. Looking at their balance balance sheet, um, there was a bit of an increase in borrowings, which is a little bit concerning. Um, we'd like to see that sort of stay constant over time. Net assets remain pretty pretty consistent as well. Um, that their cash flow positive which is nice to see from an on operating basis obviously when they've paid for the property plants and equipment and tangible assets that goes into negative and they're not at the stage yet where they're paying paying dividends i think what you want to see from them is continued revenue re revenue growth as they attempt to evolve into this internet of things business the next piece of quick fire news during the week was the notification that John Fallett, the former CEO of Sky Television, is also retiring from the board. So that's pretty much, I guess, him moving away from the company completely. Now, I know Sky TV has had their issues of recent, well, I guess, with basically the proliferation of smart and organised competition and what I call the commoditization of content around the world. Um so John's been a big part of Sky for a long period of time. I will miss his annual reports. I think his letters to shareholders were, were the, the best in New Zealand. Um, the chairman, Peter Marcourt, said, John's leadership of Sky saw the business transform from three channels and 125 employees to a multi-platform, highly profitable company with over 1,200 staff serving more than 750,000 New Zealand homes. The innovations that John brought to Sky have revolutionised the way New Zealanders view television and he leaves a significant legacy and I think that's absolutely right I mean forgetting the problems that or the challenges not the problems that Sky TV are facing now not necessarily their fault in my view but there's certainly some challenges that they're facing and I think John has done a, a, a pretty good job 
over the years. It'll be interesting to see if the new CEO, Martin Stewart, who is relatively new, if he can t- how he deals with those challenges going forward. The next company in Quickfire is Air New Zealand. Trades on, everyone knows Air New Zealand, probably one of the probably the most famous company in the NZX. Trades on the NZX under the ticker code AIR and the ASX under the ticker code AIZ. Doesn't seem too long ago that everything was as rosy as it gets for Air New Zealand. Profits were like eight hundred million dollars. The were spending money, all the staff were getting bonuses, things were awesome where it looks like and air travel is, is obviously cyclical with the economy. It looks like we're moving to the other part of that now where they're announcing business reviews and, and cost cutting and the like. So basically they're revising their growth projections downwards, um, expecting slower levels of revenue growth than what they'd previously announced. So when airlines start to get to that, they start to look at their capex and efficiencies. And you know, when you read through the report, you, you see things like increasing in capital efficiency through retirement of fleet orders. That's one of the headlines. Optimising our network to maximise and diversify revenue. So there's lots of words like optimising and efficiency and that, you know, Here's one, smoother aircraft capex resulting from deferral of NEO aircraft. Two-year, here's another total, two-year cost reduction program targeting more than $60 million in annualised savings in addition to ongoing annualised savings of $50 million. Though Those are the sort of headlines. They did reaffirm their outlook. So I think what we're seeing here in the airline space, at least in New Zealand, is maybe the moving on to the next stage of the cycle. Not necessarily a reflection on Air New Zealand's business, probably just where we're at with the cycle. Next company in Quickfire is Methin. Trades on the NZX under the ticker code MVN. We've talked about this in the past, obviously, with their takeover bids. So essentially, they're going to be delisting on the 1st of April. The High Court looks like it's approved the scheme of arrangement. So... You know, no real, no real surprises there. So it looks like it's disappearing from the market, which is obviously a, a shame for you know investors because it's been around and it's another stock gone from the NZX. Um, it's been around since two thousand and four, listed on the NZX. So shame to see a, a stock disappearing. But as I've said before, this sort of stuff happens in the financial markets. You know, companies disappear. I guess. As I've mentioned in the past, the concerning thing is that we're not getting those replacements of new companies listing on the NZX. So, shame to see Methvin go, but would like to see some new listing on the NZX. Staying on the quickfire and staying on the topic of takeovers, it looks like the partial takeover of restaurant brands, RBD is a ticker code on the NZX by Finaccess, has closed. They had acceptances of 91. 35%. So as the total acceptances exceeded 75% of restaurant brand shares, acceptances of the partial takeover will be scaled in accordance with the takeover code. So pretty much, I haven't read the takeover code, but pretty pretty much what I think that means is that you'll get a proportional amount of your shares accepted if you're part of the 91.35% that accepted the takeover deal. So been interesting to see what what happens to the stock price of restaurant brands as the market sort of digests this news. I'll be curious to watch. I'll be paying attention to it over the next little while. Moving on from Quickfire, my email is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Please feel free to send across any questions that you have and I'll see if I can get them answered on the podcast. I got an audio question from Arjun during the week, which I'll play for you now. 
Oh, good day, Jeremy. Um, first of all, thank you very much for the podcast. I've been really enjoying it since you uh, have started. Um, I have a question about investing and ethics. Um, I was looking at a lot of the um, the stocks on the ASX, and you know there are a lot of uh, uh, mining operations, and I just can't help but feel like it's kind of gross. Um, so I was sort of wondering, and, and then there's you know others like on the NZX, you've got the NZ King Salmon, and you know you hear all about the bad things about that, and it's in the Marlborough Sounds, and it's and it's quite hard to sort of justify putting any money into it. So I was wondering, how do you balance um, investing and ethics? Uh, thanks very much. Firstly, thanks very much for your question, Arjun. I really appreciate your feedback as well. I'm glad that you're enjoying the podcast. And wow, what a question. It's a great question. I <laughs> emailed you during the week and said that certainly is a tough question as well. It's also a very topical question. In the last few years, the whole ethical investing theme has reared its head and has received a lot of attention with supporters basically making the argument that long-term investing is more likely to be successful if it's ethical and I can certainly see that point of view. But now ethics and investing, like I said, it's a difficult question. It's certainly not binary. It's not one or the other. I probably think that it's one of those things where the answer is it's not black or white. It's various shades of grey. On one side of the street, you have the opinion that at the end of the day, investing is about making money and that should be your guiding light. That you should essentially leave ethics to the law and to the, everyone else to the side and that you as a stock investor should be focused on making rational decisions based around profits. Now, I do obviously get that argument and I do not judge people that have it. On the other side of the coin, you have the alternative approach, which is the view that as a shareholder, you're a part owner of a company and when you own part of the company, you should be concerned about what they do. Now, I fully understand that point of view as well. I think the key thing in this argument is that it'll be difficult, it'll be not difficult, it'll be different, it was difficult, but it'll be different for everyone. In the examples you gave regarding mining, there could be a strong argument put forward that while mining may have some undesirable environmental impacts, it is necessary to continue productivity and societal growth. You know, another example could be airlines, for example. Clearly, airlines is not fantastic, flying is not fantastic for the environment, but it's an important part of the economy and we couldn't really do without it. And as technology improves, that view use might change as well. Likewise with New Zealand King Salmon, I, I guess the, the key thing is that if you do not feel comfortable owning a stock for ethical reasons, then you do not have to. And I, I think the line in the sand is going to be different for different people. Like my line in the sand might be different to the next person's. But you can, you can go even deeper than that, and this is why it's so confusing. You, you might, for example, be comfortable with only one mining stock that you consider to be ethical, but you, you might not be considered only another one, say Vale, the Brazilian company that keeps on having those dam bursts, for example. You might have issues owning that, but you might feel more than comfortable with another company, and that's when you can really dive in with your research to feel what to see what you are comfortable with. So you can see how much of a complex issue it is. I had a big discussion with a friend of mine recently about this, and I can give you a quick summary. Basically, I saw what I thought to be an opportunity to make some money buying a cigarette company in the United States. The company's called Altria. I might have said that wrong, but it trades in the US under the ticker code MO. That's M for mother, O for Oscar. It had tanked down to nearly $40 per share, and it was basically cheap on all valuation metrics. And they were you know, spinning off a lot of cash and, uh, you know, you Everyone, everyone knows what cigarette companies do. Anyway, I was discussing this with my mate as to whether I should buy the stock or not. And my view is that 
I do not, as I, I, I obviously don't like cigarette companies, and I was thinking, but the stock wouldn't know that I'd own it. And I'd have no influence over the decisions of the company, so what does it really matter if I own the shares? But I eventually came to this decision not to buy it. And the question that I asked myself, and I, I think other people should ask themselves when they think ethically is, would I feel comfortable getting rich from owning the cigarette company? And the answer I came up with was no. So my decision was that I shouldn't feel I wouldn't feel comfortable I shouldn't feel comfortable making a small amount of money if I didn't feel comfortable making a lot of money, and if you don't feel comfortable making a, a lot of money, then you shouldn't try to make a small amount of money off it. That was my conclusion, but I think all you can do is is do the best that you can. Your your line in the sand as a listener will be different to someone else's, and you will not get it a hundred percent right, and it won't be in a straight line either. Warren Buffett, for example, was frequently gets asked this question about is some of his investments. And he said that his basically guiding light is he doesn't have any trouble owning publicly owned parts of publicly owned companies, but he wouldn't feel comfortable owning all of the shares. So it's a different view there. And it's also important to consider that what is ethical evolves over time. So I wasn't alive in the 1930s, but I'm sure that it was considered just fine to own shares in a tobacco company back then. And that perception has clearly changed. In the 1980s, there would have been no issue, for example, buying Coca-Cola shares. But perhaps now that perception is changing with people. You know, you had the ethical investing thing come up with Facebook recently and the mining of data and everything like that. And how ethical is that? So who knows what the next, where the next trends will be. But as society evolves, what is ethical will evolve as well. So I think to sum up, you need to make your own decisions about what you're comfortable with. And you'll need to find out where your own line in the sand will be and and probably realise that that line in the sand will not be a straight line. So you might think, for example, that a pharmaceutical company whose product saves lives is considered is a very ethical company and they've done a lot of good for society, whereas someone else with a different view might think that a pharmaceutical that same pharmaceutical is not ethical because they've tested some of their products on animals as an example. And there's no right or wrong way there, but there's so many different ways of looking about this. And there's one thing I wouldn't necessarily recommend is going out there and touting yourself as an ethical investor. I think it has so many different interpretations that you could end up getting judged on on it if you make an investment that someone else calls unethical. And you know, you can also take my own advice that if you'd feel uncomfortable getting rich from it, then you probably shouldn't make a small amount of money from it either. The next question I'll discuss was sent in during the week by Gnome, who is a long time listener to the podcast, so I really appreciate the question. He had a question about company reporting and asked, when you analyze a company, do you read the entire 10K and 10Q word for word? 10K is a code in the United States for annual report, and 10Q refers to quarterly reports. The equivalent for New Zealand would be annual and interim reports. I'd like to disclaim what I'm about to say by saying that in investing, the more you read, the better. I'd also like to say that I try to develop a lot of my opinions from what I read in these reports as opposed to what people sort of whisper to me or what might be said in the media. So the reports are important to me. But to answer the question directly, no, I do not read the reports word for word. While the more you read is better is certainly true, there are still only 24 hours in the day. And some of these reports can be, you know, incredibly long reports. So I guess it's about reading them and taking in information efficiently. So the more of these reports you read, the, you, the better you get an idea of what you can skip. 
Um, but there are certain things that I always read. So, for example, in the United States, they always have very detailed descriptions of what a company actually does. And I, I wish that was a requirement and reports in this part of the world. So I always read those and I love reading them. But you do get an idea of what you can skip. For example, when I was looking at Booking.com the other week, I skipped over the risk factor that was talking about exchange rate risk. Of course, the company that operates in 200 companies has exchange rate risk. And I, I won't learn, learn anything by reading it. You just know it. So I, I don't read that. But then in the same report, I read in detail the risk when they were discussing competition, you know, I was really interested to read what they thought of Airbnb and Google and everything like that. So I always also read letters from CEO and directors to try to get clues from that. And you can pick up a lot from the language as well. One thing I always skip over in New Zealand and Australian reports are pages that they, when they talk about charitable contributions. For example, I have a Fiducian annual report on my screen in front of me just now. Fiducian, by the way, trades on the ASX under the ticker code FID. And they have a page about eyesight charity that they're supporting. I just skip over that. Well, while it is no doubt important work and it is, is great that the company's doing it, it doesn't really impact the investment thesis, so I don't read it. Um, likewise, there are many reports that have pages dedicated to their staff and some staff stories like profiles about how long a staff member has been with the company, etc. And no doubt this is a good thing for the company and it's it's great for morale. You know, imagine knowing someone that is named in the annual report, for example, but I don't read it. Um, and I admit... I shouldn't do this, but I normally skip over the pages about debt direct remuneration, and you should read that, but I don't, especially if it's one of those that it's like 20 pages long. And, you know, I, sh I shouldn't really do that, but I'm always a bit leery of direct remuneration reports that are, that, that, that are 20 pages wrong. So I simply just mark that down as a black mark against the company. doesn't mean I don't invest in it, but I, I put it in the black mark column and move on. Anyway, so there are, there are some, th some things that I read and some things that I do not. Um, I think the only way to learn what is important and what is not is to read as many reports as possible and try to understand as much as possible, and that's certainly what I'd recommend. So that is about all we have time for today. Many thanks again for listening into the podcast. As a reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. If you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz and click on the invest section as well and, and get in touch if you'd want to receive some updates on how the portfolio is going. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. .co.nz. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin and this has been episode 33 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday the 29th of March 2019 and we'll see you all again next week.